Yo-ho, and welcome back to Ride Better Faster, a show about cycling training and racing. I'm Damien Roos. In this episode, real-time tools for focus and motivation. Meditation is often brought up as a way to learn how to be calm and focused, but when you're in real life, you need something that will work in real time. We find out what that is. Also, N plus one adventure bikes. How do they fit into your riding if you're a competitive cyclist, and how do you know what one to buy? Let's do things a little different today. Let's start with the science of fast. The science of fast. The segment of the show where it's 100% science and it's 100% fast. It's not fast, but that sounds catchy. This time, a breathing toolkit for focus and motivation. On a recent episode of the Rich Roll podcast, a guest called Dr. Andrew Huberman sparked my interest when he was talking about ways of breathing to bring you down or up, depending on what type of person you are and what types of situations you encounter. This got me thinking about how useful this would be in our world, the cycling, training and racing world. Dr. Andrew Huberman is a neuroscientist and professor in the Department of Neurobiology at Stanford University School of Medicine. His specialization is neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to recognize and repair itself by forming new neural connections throughout life. When his conversation with Rich Roll led to breathing, I started taking notes. Dr. Huberman says breathing is powerful because everyone has a diaphragm and the diaphragm is the immediate link to the body and is our real-time control over our brain state. In other words, the brain knows what the body's doing by how fast the diaphragm is moving and we can control the diaphragm in real time. And while we know about the benefits of meditation, what about a real-time change? What if you could motivate or focus in real time? How would that change your training and racing? Let's start with focus. The ability to calm yourself and focus is one of the most important skills as an athlete, period. Most people have too much going on and they're too agitated to focus. But being able to focus is one way to level up your riding. This was highlighted during a conversation in episode 7 of Pink Bikes The Privateer YouTube series. I've pinched the clip from YouTube, which I will play in a second, but for some context, this series follows Adam Price an amateur mountain bike enduro racer, a privateer, on his quest for a pro contract. On the way, working out if all the free gear and high dollar contracts make a real difference to performance. In this episode, Adam's in the gym with his trainer for the series, Todd Shumlik, an enduro pro trainer and owner of Perform X Training, and Adam brings up how his job creeps into his racing. One of the things that definitely is factored into the racing is like, my job is definitely all, all over the place. You know, I've got like 10 tabs open at a time and we're jumping from one thing to the next. And it's like lots of quick little tasks. Totally. And then there's the office environment as well. It's like it all you realize goes into your head and then you... That's a bigger part of your life than yeah. the training is. The training is a small little thing. You fit into all that, right? Yeah. So all that is have a bigger effect on you than your training does. Mm. So how does one get away from that? and then reprogram yourself to do this. Since we've been here, mm -hmm. I've got 13 emails of things that are pressing that have to be done here in the next yeah, hour. Right. Don't forget, I do have a World Cup mountain bike. Yeah, team, yeah, yeah. And You're I've got guys there. testing and stuff. You know where I'm focused right now on? Only you. you got to concentrate on you. That's yeah. it. That's the next level for you. I totally see it in you. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're fitter and technically here. Yeah. 
And I think your level of concentration is here. Yeah, definitely. If I lined up the top guys I work with right now, mm -hmm. it's the only big step they have over you right now. If you probably watched and you went out and did skill test, skill riding with them, you're probably not that far off. Yeah. If you're physical fitness, you keep up with these guys. Mm -hmm. But your ability to just, when it really counts, to get that mental sharpness and focus, yeah. focus I, that's, that's a high priority right now. Todd has a point that turning on your focus at the right time is the key difference between professionals and everybody else. And this skill is a high priority task to spend time working on. They go on to address this in the second half of the episode, talking about mindfulness practice. But Dr. Huberman suggests a breathing technique that can calm the nervous system in real time. A side note here about why breathing is so important, especially for athletes. Respiration has an important role in balancing oxygen and carbon dioxide in the body and in the brain. And it has an important impact on states of mind and body. And the fastest way that Dr. Huberman knows how to bring the autonomic system down is with something called a physiological sigh. There was a study called the peptidergic control circuit for sighing that discovered that animals and people periodically throughout sleeping and throughout the day do what's called a physiological sigh. This study found a set of neurons in your brainstem that every once in a while, when the level of carbon dioxide in your bloodstream gets too high, you do a double inhale and an extended exhale. That double inhale maximally inflates the little sacs in the lungs and that pulls carbon dioxide out of the bloodstream at a higher level so that you offload it more in the exhale. And as Dr. Huberman says, these physiological sighs are the fastest way that he's aware of to take that seesaw from too high a level of stress to a little bit calmer, which in turn increases your ability to focus. So this may be a set of neurons that everybody has and uses periodically, but we can also consciously control this through the diaphragm with a double inhale through the nose and an extended exhale. A <sighs> sniff, sniff, exhale. On the flip side of agitation and busyness and stress is hypoarousal, a state that lies on the low end of arousal. Behaviorally, hypoarousal can be seen as an under-responsiveness to stimuli and one's environment. For example, as inattention, apathy, or boredom. If you find yourself here, you'll need another type of breathing exercise in your toolkit. As Dr. Huberman says, this is about learning how to self-generate adrenaline so you can take yourself from low energy to high energy. This type of practice is not as straightforward as learning how to sigh. The breathing techniques are more complicated, as are the issues that may lead you to this state. But to me, this is useful when it's just one of those days when you're having a hard time even getting out the door, this might be something to try. The breathing recommended here is something like TUMO type breathing. And this is serious stuff and it comes with warnings. So make sure you are physically up for it. I'm not gonna go into the details, but it's like 25 or so deep breaths through the nose and out through the mouth, then exhaling the breath and then holding. But searching for TUMO will get you some examples to try. Moving on to the feature, where do the new adventure road bikes fit into your riding if you're a competitive cyclist? N plus one is the standard response because new adventure road bikes don't spell the end of the road bike as we know it. One bike can't do it all. So if you only want to train and race on the road, you need a road bike. A bike I define as having a drop bar that can take up to 28mm tires and has somewhat aggressive geometry. 
It's as simple as that. Everything else is a compromise on performance. Historically, road cycling has been a sport of very little choice, but with the introduction of the new all-rounder bikes, the all-road, the gravel, the adventure road bikes, bike manufacturers have started to see that it's always been done this way no longer applies, and are starting to introduce bikes that challenge the notion of what a road bike is. I'd say this is changing because... For most cyclists, the road race only mentality doesn't fit all of the time, and the adventure bike does everything but road racing. So if you're looking to expand your training routes, improve your skills on new surfaces, or just be more comfortable on epic rides, then an adventure road bike might be for you. And to sift through the options, I enlisted the help of this guy. Warren, yeah, G'day. Warren Rossiter, Senior Technical Editor at Bike Radar. As a guy who spent nearly two decades testing bikes and working within the road cycling market, I trust him when he says... I think it's always going to be that M plus one bike. You know, you're going to have your main road bike, the one that you do all your, your hard training, your hard miles and, 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 you know, your sporty fast riding. And then you've got this other one, which is for, you know, those kind of uh, fun Sunday afternoon rides uh, or even, you know, riding out with a few mates to a to a pub, you know, uh, an hour's an hour away down some paths or something. They just um what I do like about them is that they bring fun back to cycling. Um because I think with the explosion of uh sportive events over the recent years and the and the more and more people have got more professional in their attitude to to mass participation riding, you know, um you can see that with the uh, the amount of power meters that get sold to to p- people that don't actually race, you know, um, and the, the seriousness of people's training, the explosion of Strava, all these things where people are taking what used to be their hobby to a, a sort of semi-pro level. And so I think when bikes like these come onto the market, it kind of reminds you why you got into cycling in the first place, like when you were a kid. And that's just the sheer fun of messing around on bikes. He's right that in my N plus one has become my fun bike. I've really loved the challenge of riding all types of terrain where I'd rather scare myself on some single track by being underbiked than being bored and sluggish on a mountain bike on the road, for example. But to backtrack slightly, I bought my N plus one bike about two years ago and deciding what to buy was harder than I thought it was going to be. I just sold my road bike, moved to a new country, and I was ready to pull the trigger on a drop bar bike with room for at least 35mm tyres. And visiting bike shops did not make it any easier. By the time I'd been to three bike shops, I'd had three different conversations, but everyone agreed. We're heading into a new road bike world with so many conflicting options. And this was part of the problem. Part of my problem of which bike do I buy? But as Warren explains, it's confusing for everyone, including the manufacturers. As you can imagine, with my job and the team that I run, we're testing a huge variety of road bikes all the time. It's kind of emerging gravel, um, endure race, uh, adventure road, whatever. I'm not convinced that many of the manufacturers really know where they're aiming these things. You know, because you've got the extreme end of it, where a real premium example would be like the Open UP um, or the Upper um which you know is a is a super light bike that you know any form you go well you could race on that i could do a cross on that or whatever but it's capable of taking a 650 wheel with a massive tire and all of a sudden you're just like well is it a hardtail mountain bike with a pair of drop bars on it you know and you look something like the cannondale slate which has got a lefty 
um, but it's drop bar, you know. And then at the other end of the scale, you've probably got the one that, that in the mass market from the big brands, the one that kind of broke cover and, and almost set the trend. Um, you go back to the GT grade. Now, that's a bike that's really capable on the road. It's like a great sportive bike, but it was designed to go anywhere. And so I just think there is a lot of confusion in manufacturing and in retail and obviously right down to, you know, guys like us who want to buy a bike. It's almost how far do you go? To me, it comes from being so early in the life cycle of these types of bikes. Manufacturers just don't know what people want yet. To understand how this might evolve, we just have to look at mountain bikes. Back when I was uh, riding and racing mountain bikes in the mid to late 90s, there were cross-country bikes, there were downhill bikes, and there was nothing in between. Now you've got downhill, you've got enduro, you've got trail, you've got XC, you've got kind of extreme XC, you've got race XC. Uh, and they've, they've got so many small niches that even me, you know, being an old school mountain biker, if I wanted to buy a new mountain bike now, I wouldn't have a clue where to start. And, you know, and I'm, I'm involved in this stuff every day. So I think in that, that emerging kind of adventure gravel, whatever you want to call it, market, it's just as difficult. There was a point when I realized that I was part of the problem. I had to define what I wanted out of this bike. Now, this is something new to me when looking at a road bike. And as I recently went through the confusion of what mountain bike to buy, I've had a handle on how to frame it. So I thought about how I ride, where I ride, and how I want to ride, which turns out it was fun to think about because there's pretty much a bike to match most riding combinations. If you're interested in what I came up with, I'm a 40-year-old dad that might race if the stars line up, but otherwise it's mixed surface riding, some flowy single track, some road riding, sometimes hard, sometimes photo taking pace and because I don't have the time to race on the road I rejected the n plus one and I wanted a do-it-all bike which even I said in the intro doesn't exist but I was still curious if Warren thinks that there is a bike that might get close you know if, if when it all boils down to it uh, yeah I think that bike has always existed you know um you know one of my favorite events that I've done numerous occasions um is La Roca in Italy in Tuscany so you're you know, you're riding the Strada Bianchi, the white roads. It's basically you're riding gravel um, and you're doing, you know, 150, 200K of riding gravel. But you've got to do it on a bike made before, you know, sort of 1985. You can't use clipless pedals. You can't use STI shifters. And so every time I've done it, I've done it on a bike made in the 1960s, usually running on, you know, like 20 mil tubs. And, you know, it's usually like it's a 10 speed at best. And you're riding it on terrain that, that, the whole kind of emerging gravel thing would say this is the bike you need for that and so what i just think is you've always been able to get off and have fun on whatever bike you have you know nobody should feel pressured it's like oh my god i need another bike to do what i can but i think where you've got really good exponents of the i won't call them gravel that kind of adventure thing and i would include you know like which is a bike like the gt grade um but i would also include bikes like the specialized Roubaix. You know, um, and the, the kind of modern generation that we're now seeing of the the sportive endurance bike, where the freedom that's come from bringing disc brakes into the market, and I know that's a whole, whole other issue, has allowed designers to build bikes with much bigger tire clearances. So you can get a you know a big volume, especially tubeless tire, that's tough enough so that if you are out on you know a ride with some mates and you're you know you're 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 heading down a a B road and you suddenly see a dirt track that goes off and you just go, I wonder where that goes. 
let's go and have you know let's go and explore with a bike like the Roubaix or even even something like Cervelo's R3D um, or Canyon's Ultimate um, SL discs. These bikes have all got big enough clearances that you can get a bigger volume tire on that won't hinder you too much on the road, but will open plenty of freedom to just go out and explore. So Warren's definition of a do-it-all bike sits more on the road bike side of things at the scale than the mountain bike side of the scale. And this definitely makes sense if you don't have a road bike. And after two years of being on my bike, a Scott Addict Gravel 10, it's definitely more suited to the off-road side of riding with some road riding on the side. I want to finish by saying that there have been times where I wished I had a road bike. But once I accepted that anything but a race bike is an N plus one, I was able to embrace the strengths of my current bike and have been really having a lot of fun on my gravel bike. And am probably going to buy a road bike in the near future. Ah, bikes. Ride Better, Faster is written, hosted, and scored by me, Damien Roos. You can check out more episodes at semiprocycling.com. Until next time, ride well. It's me again. I just wanted to tack this on the end because I thought it was really useful advice from Warren about what questions to ask when new technology comes along. And especially because it's from his perspective as someone that's in the media that gets this probably every single day. I think you need to be able to question especially you know we with you know the guys like myself any any of the technical guys in the, in the media um we're always being presented to as this is the latest and greatest this is the next best thing and you just rather than being full of skepticism you just have to be asking the right questions you just have to be yeah but what's it for or but what's the point you know why have you, why have you done this you know it, and that that can be something as radically different as say di2 or or Campag EPS or you know or ETAP or or disc brakes or whatever but it can be something much more subtle than that it's like um it's like when you get a brand presents to you and goes we've made this frame and it's now you know it's 620 grams and you go well that's great but why you know do we need anything that light you know the, the UCI ruling sets sets a limit and you're actually making it more difficult now to get that bike to the UCI limit. You know, um, with like Trek, the, the Amanda SLR, which is a phenomenal bike. It's fantastic. 640 gram for the rim brake version or 680 gram for the disc brake version on the frame. It's, that's a phenomenally low weight. It's something that um, you wouldn't have seen from a mass-produced bike even two years ago. The only bikes that ever got close to that were things like Cervelo's Project California, or some of the you know real exotic German brands that are, that are, that were handmade, you know, by one guy in a secretive room somewhere, and so you know we're selling for ten thousand dollars for the frame. Um, this is a you know now become a, a mass-produced item, but then you you know you talk to the guys in their service course, and they're like, oh yeah, we have to put like a five hundred gram weight um, inside the frame, inside the bottom bracket to bring it up to the UCI level, and you have to think, doesn't that compromise? the original idea now should they be lobbying the uci to get their weights down or or should they be going you know we don't need to make a frame this light <laughs> can't we you know can we focus on other areas because componentry's got so much lighter wheels are lighter tires are lighter bars stems everything else you know it, it, it used to be the biggest trend in road cycling was can you make it lighter can you make it stiffer 
and that's all well and good but it did lead to a fair few bikes out there especially bikes that i tested you just went i admire the technical achievement i don't like the bike you know it, it's overly stiff so it's it's uncomfortable uh, you know it, it's and and that's actually a trend that i really like that has happened over recent years it's where we're finding the good old sportive or endurance bike is now getting more aggressive you know the the, the angles are starting to edge towards racing but they've maintained the comfort levels and the pure pro level race bikes are getting more comfortable you know you ride a bike like the bmc team machine slr the new trick amanda the um probably what started the trend was this canada super six evo is these are pure bred race bikes where they're considering comfort and you get on those and you go wow this this is where it should be you know um Comfort is not comfort in, in road cycling, especially used to be a dirty word, and I don't think it's a dirty word anymore. And that to me is a good thing. 